Well, welcome, and thank you for being here. Um, I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight, who I've known for a number of years. Uh, I'm not going to try to calculate how many. I don't think it's in either of our interest to do that. But I, I do want to mention that Professor Hart uh, has had his distinguished career as a scholar and is one of the few people who I know who was uh, a successful administrator who served as dean of the College of Communication at the University of Texas for a number of years and did not let that stop him from being a productive scholar. And <laughs> I know how difficult that is, and I really appreciate that. In fact, there are two things that I uh, was influenced personally by uh, his example when I was a um, youngish assistant professor. One was he wrote a, a column for the NCA newsletter, I assume you will remember this, uh, about the importance of publishing books and how to reach certain audiences, especially beyond one's immediate uh, sub-discipline, that it was important to, uh, to write books and that books that he could also develop, obviously, a more uh, sophisticated and uh, well-researched argument in a book. And I read that as a beginning assistant professor and was persuaded and, and tried to follow that, that advice. The other thing that Professor Hart has done that I find exemplary is that though he was, I think, officially trained as a rhetoric scholar at Penn State where he got his PhD and master's degree. By the way, he's a Massachusetts native. He got his bachelor's at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, is that he did not allow that to stop him from exploring other methodologies. And there was a concept that I've actually cited recently, Rod, called rhetorical sensitivity cited in my, my classical work, actually, uh, which was an attempt to operationalize, in a sort of social scientific sense, certain <laughs> concepts that dealt with um, one's rhetorical style, bless you. More recently, uh, he was, as far as I know, the first in the discipline of communication studies uh, to create or co-create software uh, that would do content analysis um, and that was designed to detect patterns in language use to identify distinct political tones. And uh, you did that originally, I want to say decades ago, and still uh, it, it's up to, uh, it's called diction, and I think they're up to 7.0 now. And uh, I teach this in my uh, theory and methods class when I teach it, and I think it's a, again exemplary of combining the humanistic interest that a rhetorical scholar would have to the sort of systematic and larger data sets that are more characteristic of social science research. So at any rate, uh, you're not here to hear from me, you're here to hear from Professor Hart, but that's why you should pay attention to him, is because he's a distinguished scholar and an absolute <coughs> trailblazer in very important ways. So please help me welcome Professor Rod Hart. Thank you, Ed. <coughs> The uh, piece of software that Ed talked about was uh, originally called my dissertation, um, and then it uh, became something something else. But it was it's been a long time, and it was a very lonely trek for a long time to be interested in computer assisted analysis of text. And of course, now my little thing is they call it a bag of words approach, which is probably the uh, the dumb end of the continuum, um, but um, now there are all kinds of people doing this kind of work. So it, it really is kind of cool at the end of 
uh, my career or near the end of the career to, to see things that were uh, originally thought to be heretical and now you know, sort of mainstream. So, uh, but it's a pleasure to, to be here and I've been a fan of Ed's for, for many, many years. Um, <clears throat> the talk today is, um, is based on content analytic work, not computer-based, but uh, I do want to, it's a, about a, talk about a book that just came out a few months ago um, that I wanted to see if, what you thought about. Um, <clears throat> the basic question is, where are we? And we're in, a, in contentious times. I think these, the, the I chose the pictures advisedly because for many of you, this, this is what politics is because you're of a certain age. For those of us from a different era, um, I grew up in a town, uh, Irish Catholic kid, uh, where there were three pictures in every house. Uh, there was Jesus Christ, the Pope, and John Kennedy. Um, and it was a time of possibility. And, and, and now we have a, a different a different sensibility. Uh, it's a very, very difficult time and there's lots of things that get in the way of our political life and, and some of them are a kind of detachment. Uh, it's not worth my time. Um, I'm, I'm better than that. Uh, it's beneath me. Um, polarization, partisan um, antagonism has never been higher. Uh, you can't have Thanksgiving with your family because everybody's going to do the R versus D thing. Um, a general culture of distrust. You can't trust elites of any sort. Institutions are, are the, the seed of all kinds of awfulness, and, and that leads to problems of interpersonal trust. And then there's an interesting notion called bystanding, where people are um, very, very significantly aware of the national scene but nobody is worried about the potholes or f funding schools that your kids might go to. Um, so there's a lot of things that are pressuring us now as a culture uh, that, are, that are difficult. Some people have talked about the death of listening, um, uh, this kind of elite polarization, people at the top don't talk to one another, um, what I call discursive gerrymandering, which is basically you've got your source of information and I've got mine, and uh, I don't trust your sources, you don't trust my sources, um, and so we just go and live in our own little bubbles. Um, negative partisanship, um, I don't know really what I feel, but I know that I don't like what you think. Um, there has been a decline of campaign undecideds. It's very, very hard. People call themselves independents. There are very few that actually are. There are people who will not disclose whether they're R's or D's, but they really are R's or D's. Um, and there's a very thin uh, uh, point between uh, the uh, R's and D's. So everybody is talking, but people can't hear one another. And I think we are in a much more brittle and touchy or anomic era. Um, <clears throat> this is a small scientific fact. If you look for the word hope in the titles of books or in political speeches over time, you will find a um, decline in the use of that word. Now, who knows what that means? One word out of a gazillion words, but it's a little factoid <coughs> that might be of some relevance. 
So I've been interested in this notion of what I call civic hope. Um, and it is an expectation that enlightened leadership is possible despite human inadequacy. That productive citizenship results from cultural pluralism. That democratic traditions produce wise governance. And this all sounds kind of cozy. But that none of this happens without constant vigilance and without constant struggle. And that's the hard part. Um, there are traditional sources of hope in the United States. The founding principles, military might, economic power, strong leaders. And these are, have been, sources of um, hope in the country. Um, I think it's good to go back and think a little bit about uh, how this nation got started. And there were some men, white men, in a room and said, let's go and invent a country. So one, one of them said, well, you know, I noticed there are a lot of idiots here on, in the colonies, so why don't we let them vote? Um, that'd be cool. No requirements. You don't have to know anything to vote. Just show up. That sounds like a great idea, they said. Um, and then let's make sure that the leaders of the country will always be made fools of um, to meet a laughing stock because it's just great to you know laugh at our leaders and that sounded really good. Another person said, you know, there's a lot of there's not that many rich guys, but let's be nice to the rich guys, let them have as much of their money as possible, uh, and maybe you know we'll get a little bit on the side. And I said that sounds terrific as well. A lot of people with guns, well, that goes with the idiots. Let's let them have as many guns as they want um, because they'll go out in the woods and shoot each other or shoot animals and, and stay away from all the polite people. And I said, that sounds terrific as well. Um, free press, that sounds great. Let them write as many stupid and awful things about the government as possible because that'll uh, give them something to do. And, um, and we all like laughing at leaders anyway. And churches, I mean, they can be a real problem. So let's give them some free land and then get them out of the picture. So the group looked around and said, I think we got ourselves a country here. This is a really terrific place. Look at all these great things that we've got going for ourselves. Um, so how does a democracy thrive? <coughs> I want to argue that it thrives by creating a sustaining a culture of complaint. You need two or more Sides, you need people willing to start an argument, you need willing to sustain an argument, and you need people involved at the grassroots level. Now, if you go back to the slide where all of these people were, if you will, these are all um, weaknesses of democracy. You let people have guns without much oversight, you let people laugh at the government. You let the rich people have it. Let anybody vote. One could argue that those are democratic weaknesses. So this book that came out a few months ago, I call, it's called Civic Hope, How Ordinary Americans Keep Democracy Alive. And I'd like to talk to you about that today and maybe put um, a smile on your face by the end, and that's my hope anyway. But there's a difference between hope and optimism, and I don't know if that that distinction has ever been clear to you. It wasn't 
when I first started looking about this stuff. Vaclav Havel has said, uh, it is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. That's what hope is. Cornell West says, I'm in no way optimistic about America, nor am I optimistic about the plight of the human species on the globe. We can be prisoners of hope, even as we call optimism into question. So that distinction between optimism and hope is truly fundamental. And if there's one thing you might take away from the talk is that, is that distinction. Because many of us are not particularly optimistic at the moment. But being hopeful is a different matter. Um, so my argument is that this nation's vitality lies not in its strengths but in its weaknesses. The weaknesses being letting women vote. Um, letting people vote without any kind of pedigree. Letting people possess firearms at, at, uh, uh, without much oversight. Um, allowing rapacious kind of entrepreneurism so that the money goes to a very small number of people and a very large number of people have a lot less. One could argue that these are the weaknesses, but the point of civic hope is that if these are weaknesses, we are, we've got to argue about them as we did with women voting, for example. We argued about that for a long time and then we made a change. And then we did the same thing with civil rights, which made no sense. It's not bad to have a servant class and to not pay them very much. That's any good macroeconomist at MIT would tell you that. That's a great way of keeping a country going economically. It's not particularly good on the human side. So creating and sustaining a culture of arguments at the grassroots level is the key to a healthy democracy. And civic hope requires that non-elites, that's people like you and me, combine a statutory impulse, that is, we've got problems here, with a kinetic impulse, meaning I can do something about it, and an agentive impulse, um, I can fix it. And I'm going to argue that people who write letters to the editor serve that function for the polity. And this is a study of letters to the editor written over a long period of time. My questions are, what is civic hope? Is it needed? And does it abide? So why would anybody want to spend time looking at letters to the editor? You've read them, and they're oftentimes, maybe you've written some. Um, they're oftentimes mindless. Maybe you've written a mindless one. Um, they're in every newspaper. They're the third most often read thing in the traditional newspaper, the front page being number one, the sports page being number two, and, the, and, and, and usually um, the obituaries and letters to the editor vie for third place. Um, so when I started this project, I had no interest in letters to the editor. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to track civic attitudes in the United States over time. And I wanted, to, I wanted to know what people were thinking at different moments in time. And it, very quickly, I found out that if you wanted to go back in time, there was nothing else. There was no other extant source of systematically collected or collectible um, documents that 
ordinary people had created. Uh, these letters are written in cities large and small. They're standards feature of newspapers. They're written by a wide variety of political actors. They're found in communities, elite and non-elite. Some locales, they're completely unrestricted by gatekeeping. And in, in, in my case, the, the um, newspapers that I chose published 90% of the letters submitted to them because I chose really um, modest towns, one of which is my hometown, um, which is where I started um, collecting them. And they're immensely popular for lots of interesting reasons why they're popular. Uh, and they're available. Uh, and as, you, as you, all of you are good scholars know, um, research is wonderful, but if you can't get any data, it makes it for a very long weekend. Um, so what does it mean to have a letters column? It means implicitly that ordinary people are important, that all ideas are contestable, that opinions are at least as important as facts, that one's opinion must be balanced by the opinions of others. And the press implicitly subscribes to all of these principles by publishing the letters to the editor. So these things I submit to you are really, really powerful human products and, and powerful civic products as well um, and often overlooked. Keeping up with the news, we know that people who subscribe to news organizations vote more often, they identify with their communities more completely, they volunteer more frequently, feel closer to their neighbors, they're better informed about local issues, are increasingly open to new information, are more willing to pay for additional online news outlets, and they're more politically sophisticated and more politically active. We know that. Uh, from a lot of research that the willingness to consume the news has all kinds of major social benefits connected to it. So why are writers compelling? Um, well, I submit they're authentic. They have a kind of presence. They're private individuals who have been willing to go public. They have authority, authority that sometimes is called lived authority. They live among us. And people who live among us, has always been interesting. Our, our, um, graduate students often uh, are the best sources of information from one another. And oftentimes graduate students are the worst sources of information. Graduate students are hassled all the time. They, they have all kinds of weird biases. And so what do you do? You bring graduate students together on September 1st when they all get to campus and they all lie to one another about the nature of the MIT program. Totally lie because they've all had individualized experience and they immediately say, what you really need to know is blah, blah, blah. That's lived authority, right? It makes no sense, but it is functioning what we do. And when you get older, professors use each other as authorities, which also is insane. Trust me, I was a dean. I know what professors are like. Um, and there's also a kind of idealism connected to it, that these writers are value-centered, and they what Michael Sandel at Harvard says, they combine soulcraft with statecraft. And so these writers have those three qualities, I submit. 
So people will say, and especially a place like MIT, you know, wow, you want to get into words, that's really kind of freaky stuff. Why don't you do surveys? Because those generate numbers really quickly, and then you can go doing 3,000 stochastic models and, and go home for the evening and drink. Um, isn't there better tools for studying public opinion? Uh, and in fact, people would say, the political science department here, of which you have a fine one, would say you've got to use a randomly generated rolling cross-section of people across 70 years. That's the way you want to study stuff. Um, or you could study 70 years worth of letters to the editor. Well, political scientists would say, you know, one of the problems is these surveys don't exist, in fact, and letters do exist. That survey respondents don't really vote much. Writers vote all the time. Survey respondents, the average American doesn't know very much about politics, and these people know a lot. Survey respondents don't really talk about politics much, and these guys talk all the time. Surveys, surveyors set the agenda. You, you answer the polls, that the, quest, the questions that the surveyor has asked you. You don't get to tell the questions yourself. You respond to the surveyor. Um, and in fact, writers set their own agendas. Surveys provide thin data, I'll explain that in a little bit, whereas letters provide thick data, that is nuanced data. You can go back and look again and again and again, but to look at a four versus a five, you gotta you know, find a difference between a four and a five, you gotta really do a lot of thinking and a lot of drinking before something comes out of there. But you can go and reread what people say and learn new things each time. And in fact, a great book you might have read many times, and you learn something new each time. I, that's true for me with a work by Kenneth Burke, some of you might know. Every time I read something of his, and I've read a lot of stuff by him, it's new each time because he was so brilliant and so thoughtful and so lush. Surveys can only be used once, and you can reread these letters endlessly because they, they're extant. So, um, so the question then becomes, again, from political science point of view, aren't these people, these are, are the, you know, you've got to get random, uh, randomly selected average people. And statistically, these people don't represent an average. Um, they're, most people are uninvolved and reticent, and these people are not that. So that's not good. But culturally, they are familiar and everyday people. They're sort of social, regular, normal people. You can, you can know them. You can predict what they're kind of like. They're middle class and bourgeois. And they're kind of sober, conventional people. So I did my own scoring, and I win. Um, you can see how many check marks I've got there. Uh, um, so these people are not average. So my only argument is they're ordinary. They're ordinary people. Um, so where did I get my letters? Well, I started in my hometown of Fall River, Massachusetts, a fine little place about 40 miles from here, uh, that when I was growing up there, you were either Irish, French, or Portuguese. And if you had any kind of money at all, you might be a Yankee. But we didn't have a lot of them there. And it's a very, it's a very ordinary place. Um, still, to this day, it's fairly ordinary was a uh, textile capital of the United States for a very short period of time after it, before it all went to North Carolina and then went to China, Vietnam. But, um, so it's a, uh, it's a wonderful place to be, to be from. But it's an ordinary place. And so I started with that and I thought, you know, 
it's a, it's a middle class, blue collar place that doesn't have a lot of um, noise. It's removed from Boston. I knew many people growing up uh, in Fall River who had never been to Boston. That's 40 miles away. Many people. Well, that's a fancy place, you know. You wouldn't go there. Um, so it's provincial. So then I went and found 11 more. Utica, New York, Trenton, New Jersey, St. Joe, Missouri, Duluth, Minnesota, Springfield, Ohio, Roanoke, Virginia, Lake Charles, Louisiana, Wichita Falls, Texas, Provo, Utah, Salinas, California, and Billings, Montana. Um, I have been to all of these cities on multiple occasions. Uh, just before I started to write the book, after collecting data for many, many years, I um, treated my wife of 52 years to a tour of all of these cities. Um, and what a delight that was. Um, and we stayed at the, uh, the Holiday Inn and um, ate the great cuisine in all of these 12 places. But it allowed me to kind of get back in touch with um, the cities and the people before writing the book. So why these cities? These cities are often called third cities. Uh, they're removed from major metropolitan areas and media markets. Population is in the 60 to 100,000 range. They're large enough to be somewhat cosmopolitan, small enough to have a distinct political culture and a regional news culture, and most have an industrial past. Um, uh, now depend on entrepreneurship, and, and that um, is, is difficult. There are train museums in six out of these 12 cities, and we went to all of the train museums. Um, but there are people of note from each of these cities. John Legend, we just saw him in Boston recently. Um, Duluth, so, huh? M&M from St. Joe, would you have guessed that? Um, we got Nobel Prize winners, and George Stephanopoulos is from my hometown. Annette, Fun if, you, if you go back into ancient history and you look up the Mouseketeers, you'll see that Annette Funicello is from Utica, an all-star baseball player in the Hall of Fame. Um, and Marie of Donnie and Marie is from Provo. Two Supreme Court justices are from Trenton, but one died, Scalia. Uh, Tommy Toon is from Wichita Falls, Texas, a Broadway star, another famous scientist. And um, uh, John Steinbeck is from uh, Salinas, California. But those are the famous people. Most of the people there are not famous. If you look at these cities from a political point of view, they are a kind of a nice collection. Uh, and this was a little bit planned and a little bit not planned. But they spread themselves out pretty well. You'll notice that they, the blue and red bounce off each other. But there's a lot of space on each side. So they're not particularly excessive places. And that, again, from a methodological point of view, was a good thing. So I did a lot of survey work over the years. This project took 20 years to do. Um, we did mail surveys three times, and we found that the writers are a little bit older than the non-writers. About the same income level, slightly more schooling, and slightly more, vote, uh, vote, uh, uh, more voting, uh, more newspaper subscriptions, more likely to be teachers, public service, or working professionals, slightly more likely to be retired, significantly more volunteered commentary. Now, what this was, we sent out paper, uh, paper and pencil uh, uh, 
surveys, put them in the mail, an old-fashioned way of, of doing surveys. Um, but once you start it, 1992, that was the one we had to continue when we continued to do surveys. And we noticed when we got these back that some of them had some writing on them. And so I kind of put them aside. I wanted to read what they had to say. And, and it turned out when we looked at them, we separated them, all the ones that had writing on them were from people who had written letters. And the people that didn't have any writing on them were all from the general population. So I decided, well, that, let's, make, let's make that a data point. So we counted the number of words that um, were volunteered. And uh, it's just a great statistical array. It's like a, a, a F of about like 300 million. Um, it, and uh, the people who write letters, they, and a lot of times they wanted to, they just couldn't put yes or no or three or five. They had to tell you why they were feeling the way they felt about that. Uh, and they also had to correct our uh, spelling. And there were no errors in spelling in there, but they felt that they needed to correct them as well. So these, we decided to make that a data point, and, and it's off the charts. Um, they are willing to volunteer their commentary all the time. And much more political involvement. And this, by every measure we use to political involvement, people who write letters to the editor are incredibly high. But they had dramatically less internal political efficacy and significantly less external political efficacy, which means that these people were heavily involved. They didn't think it made a difference, and they were going to do it anyway. So I took this, and I'm not the biggest statistical guy in the world, and I had the best people I knew go back and look my data. And it came out the same way every single time we did it. They are heavily involved. They want to make their cases, and they don't think it'll make a difference. Isn't that interesting? Aren't they, isn't that curious? Why would people do such an illogical thing? Because they're so politically passionate. It makes no difference to them. They've got to do it. And that's an interesting kind of person, in my opinion. It's their motivational crux, I think. Um, so we did a lot of open-ended interviews, and these were really wonderful. Um, and we you know, asked people you know, why they wrote letters. And they said, well, to be deliberative and to spread the word and get things off their chest, and to fix error. There's a lot of fixers among these groups. Um, and um, because it felt good. Uh, and so these were the, we try to, I do, try to do my best in the, to bring some of these interviews into the book because uh, they're really very uh, passionate. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Kathleen Jamison at University of Pennsylvania, when she read the book, she said, you know, you've made these people so eloquent. Um, and I said, no, I didn't do that. They made themselves eloquent. I assembled their, their, their remarks for them. But they are, they have a deep, kind of in-the-gut eloquence that um, I have great respect. We asked them the question, do you think you're having an impact? Um, and uh, one, one person said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, although I have, after I wrote letters, received feedback, but it was from colleagues and people, you know, I agree with you, but, you know, you hang around people who are like-minded. But we, some of the people said, oh, yes, I... I had uh, I met the mayor at a social gathering, and he said, oh, I read your letter, and it was so important and so compelling. And we had those kind of people. But generally speaking, though, we had people like this, 
I don't know what the impact would be. It didn't depends on what side of the fence you're on. Either you like me or you don't. Most of the time I get some comments like great letter, but I, I don't know what impact it is, and I don't really care. I don't really care. I've got to do it anyway. Um, so then we wrote, we did surveys that said, what do you think of these people that write letters? Uh, figuring that that was important. We did that over two times over a 20-year period. And generally speaking, we asked them, do you think they're much like you? And you could see they kind of fit the normal curve. Are they similar to people you know? And again, they kind of fit the normal curve. Are they excessively egotistical? We tried to take all the stereotypes. And, and by and large, they uh, uh, reproduce the normal curve. Are they better educated than you? No, not really that much. They like sounding off? Well, again, you got a pretty normal distribution. Are they more liberal? No, just about the same. Um, but generally speaking, the one thing where they did differ, do you think they want to help the community? And, and there was a, a push more in the direction of, yeah, I think they probably do. So by and large, we concluded from these surveys that people in the community sort of have a kind of grudging, passive respect for the people who write the letters. Um, and they tend to recognize them because they're, again, from these small cities. We did surveys of the people who edit the newspapers the, and the column, letter columns. Spoke to the paper's editor, opinion page editor. We found out that they accept virtually all the letters submitted. And again, methodologically, that was really important because there was no gatekeeping effect by the newspaper itself. The only ones that they reject, and the reason they, they take them all is because they're kind of dumb little towns with dumb little newspapers, and so they need as much content for free as they can get. And so they put them in there. That helps them, but it helps me because it didn't produce all kinds of biases in the, in the data. Um, and these are the things that they, uh, they said about the, uh, what, their, what their job was to help them kind of improve their letters, maintain compositional standards, uh, try to push them. But they don't do much editing. Um, and most of these cases, you people, a lot of people write multiple letters to the editor like every day. But uh, we only allowed, in our uh, sample of 10,000 letters, we only allowed people in once uh, for obvious reasons. And the newspapers themselves usually restrict them to one letter a month, uh, about 250 words per letter. So the main part of the project was a content analytic project. And this is a human coding project that I ran um, multiple generations of graduate students through because it took about a 20, it was over a 20 year period. I didn't intend to be a 20 year period. I was going to write the book in 2004 and I was reluctantly made a dean at that time. And so I did another 10 years of collecting letters and thinking about it and getting on the plane to go and try to raise money and taking letters with me. And um, I think the book turned out to be a better book because it you call it savoring if you're um, upper class, so I was able to savor the letters. Um, but um, I think it, it did make it a, a deeper and more personal experience. So most of the stuff is content analytic, and so these are the letters we tended to get. Um, these were all done during presidential election years from 1948 through 2012, just about 10,000 total. Um, um, one of the things we noticed, uh, again, the whole question of normality, because I spent a lot of time in political science, uh, I'm very sensitive to questions about representation, uh, representativeness, uh, but it's, what's interesting is that even though these people are not um, 
uh, randomly selected. Uh, if you look across time, you know, concern for women's rights goes up over time, the concern for the environment, gay rights, abortion, elder care, the things that in fact culturally happened in the United States over that time, these people reflect them pretty well. Um, concern for communism, civil rights, high in the 60s and dropping off and then coming up a bit in the, in the Obama years. Agriculture, manufacturing, less emphasized. So in general, they tend to be part of the culture and they tend to respond to what's going on in the culture. Um, I know some of you have done content analysis. You get trained in, in groups and you try to get reliability estimates and that kind of thing. So it's, it's complicated. Um, this was one of the largest um, content analytic schemes um, that I've ever seen. I'll explain them to you. But basically what I tried to do was to come at each letter and, and code them in multiple ways. Because I really wasn't sure what was the best way to do it. And so I decided to use, based on a lot of you know, theoretical work, but in both political science and, and, and communication, tried to figure out what, um, and so the, this makes for modeling impossible because we allowed each, each phrase, each sentence to be coded in multiple ways. So the, uh, if you know anything about multicollinearity, uh, it's something that people try to stay as far away from as possible. We said, come on, bring it all in. Because in fact, when we talk to one another, uh, if I say, good morning, uh, Professor Schapa, uh, well, that's a, it's a salutation, but it's also a, um, an acknowledgement of him, but it's also a formal acknowledgement of him. And I've known him as Ed for a long time, so if I come in one day and say, good morning, Professor Schapa, he says, whoa, what's wrong with Hart? Was he being ironic in giving me my formal title? Why doesn't he call me Ed like he normally calls me? And so, good morning, Professor Schapa can be coded in really multiple ways. And we do that to one another all the time. We say things and, what did he say? Is he in a mood? What's going on? So we allowed these letters, these are little tiny letters, and we had gazillion ways of coding them. That's a problem and a strength. Um, two of the things we looked at were cultural issues. National touchstones, how often did they refer to the, con the basic values of American democracy? Another thing we looked at was what I call oppositional literacy, and that is the extent to which people are able to reproduce the viewpoints of another person. Um, so if, if, if I say, well, I know you're, um, I know you're a gun rights person, um, and you say, well, I am indeed. Well, I know, I, you know you, all you gun rights people, you're just idiots. Right? You're just rural hick people that don't know anything. Now that's got low oppositional literacy. Uh, because I'm not able to reproduce what that person said. Well, the person might say, well, in fact, I am from a rural area. But I grew up in that, on that. My dad taught me how to shoot. And we do game hunting because managing the uh, wildlife is very important in my part of the, in my part of the world. Uh, and how dare you assume that I'm an idiot. Um, so oppositional literacy is really important, and we'll talk a little about that in a minute. We also looked at things like political time. Um, we looked at how people referred to the past, how people project the future. 
And letter writers are always projecting the future, sometimes darkly. Uh, but they also reference the things that have gone on in the past. Why in my day, young man? All right, you've heard that. Who do they talk about in the letters? Do they talk about themselves? Do they invest themselves? Do they use personal examples? What do they talk? Do they reference the, the, the voters in general? So what kind of people are being discussed? Who are their agents of hope? We had 16 ways of tagging that. And who are the agents of decline? Um, these are people who advance the, the society or retard the society. We looked at whether they gave campaign advice or campaign complaints. All these are written during campaigns. And we wanted to know what kind of, what kind of things were they suggesting uh, that the campaign ought to do and what were they really upset about when they uh, talked about the campaign. What groups did they reference? Helpful groups, unhelpful groups, and we had a number of um, categories. What kind of leadership traits did they, did they identify? Uh, were they uh, the good bill or the not so good bill? And what kind of ways did they um, describe them? Relationships. We looked, tagged evidence of coordination or disunity. So here is an example of what a coding might look like. So this is a small bit of text, and you can see it is coded and overcoded, um, and sometimes the same sentence is coded in multiple in different ways, depending upon which code. So this is that business of multicollinearity, where you get all kinds of everything correlates, and that becomes a problem, uh, which I avoided by not trying to um, do any complex math with it, because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. Um, so all of this is to say, I think as a result of this overcoding, uh, over we really did get a sense of what these people were like and what they believed. So what did they? Um, so why are letters to the editor compelling? And one of the reasons is, you can see this, there's a lot of civic forecasting. These people are all about telling you the way things are going to be. Right? If you look at letters, you'll see that dire warnings about this things are going or things that are going to get, going to get better. Uh, and that was a, a major thing. Uh, much, less about the, the, much less about the past than the future. So there was some reference to the past. Um, and um, very, very little oppositional literacy. Very few times do we kind of find people um, able to reproduce the arguments of people with whom they disagree. Um, and that's, that is a worrisome condition. That's that little green slice. Um, why are these letters colorful? And there's a lot of stuff there, but what you might notice is that they're paired, agents of hope and decline, evidence of coordination, disunity. What it all comes down to is a kind of dialectic. It sort of all balances off. This is the dialectic of democracy, both helpful groups and unhelpful groups. And it, it's not perfect, but it's almost a perfect yin and yang going against each other. And again, if you read, if you read letters or you listen carefully to political talk, you'll see this kind of to and froing that um, 
I think ultimately is a good thing, uh, given the weaknesses of democracy, to have this kind of dialectic. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think these letters rehearse people's anxieties. Um, they give the sense that people's complaints are being heard, that you're not alone, you're not crazy, sin exists but someone knows, and that hope springs from the diagnosis. And so I think in some ways these letters do provide a kind of therapeutic intervention for people, both the writers and people who read them. What makes a good political leader? Character intelligence. Traits are emphasized with bottom line qualities, mostly related to competence and moral strength. And interestingly enough, the things that were not emphasized were all the things you tend to read in the elite press. Um, these people are very, in, very uninterested in the maneuvering and the, and the tactical skills of campaigns. These people are bottom line concerned about the um, what's right and wrong and what good and bad in the democracy. And in many senses, a real rejection of the media agenda. And if you watch much political coverage of campaigns, you'll notice that so much of it is about horse race coverage. And these people want nothing to do with that. And that's what I think makes them particularly refreshing. They continue to throw back, throw themselves back onto, and you back onto, the really fundamental questions that democracies are about. Um, we looked at the values that they referenced in the letters over time. Um, a concern for right to bear arms, religious traditions, capitalism, family structures, and those were constitutional freedoms. And I think those, that value cluster um, was strong, and you could call that conservative in a small c conservative sense. Um, scientific progress, civic volunteerism, law and order, mass education, unfortunately, um, equal rights for all, much less, much less emphasized. And so in that, in that sense, these people tend to be older. The average age is about 58, 59. Um, and so they tend to cling to the kind of values that you learn in civics class in the fourth grade. Um, and obviously there are changes over time, and I'm not going to lay that out here, but these things do change. But in general, those very hoary kind of American values were still very vital. Um, and a lot of people, these people are irritating. Um, um, they come across as know-it-alls. And um, we, uh, we coded the, when they referred to themselves, and you can see, here's what my, here's what my opinion is. I have special knowledge. You can see that gets a big piece. I dislike people who, here's what I'm doing about, I'm feeling pessimistic about. And all these things, I, I couldn't give you, I couldn't label them all because they're two little tiny slices, but all those are the things I'm confused, my knowledge is incomplete, my beliefs are unpopular, I've been wrong about that. That's these little teeny tiny things up here that you can't even see because they don't do it. They are people who are going to tell you how the world is. And I know right now some of you are young and liberal and you will become these people um, <laughs> over time. It would be my, would be my guess. Some, some might be getting close to that, but 
This is who you, this is who you will be, and the women, you begin to look like your mother. I, I tell you that now, um, and that'll be to make you happy or not. Um, I tell my wife that all the time. It doesn't make her happy. Um, they're also paternalistic. Uh, references to, um, um, to us have gone up over time. They're increasingly able to speak for you, um, and that makes them irritating. Um, and they're also, um, we looked at the ways they described their fellow man, uh, their fellow human, and um, they're not all that impressed <laughs> with the people who share the planet with them um, because they're critics. Um, so uh, I was teaching an honors class um, a couple of years ago, and um, so I gave these kids some of these letters. I gave them some letters from 1952, and I gave them some letters from 2012. I think I taught the class in, I think, 2013, 2014, so it was pretty close to that. And I said, it was an open, these are honors kids, and it's an open-ended assignment. I want you to read these things and write me a five-page paper. So they, they did the assignment, they wrote the five-page paper, I graded the stuff, sent it back to them, and didn't really think about it. And then I, I kept a copy, and at the end of the, during the summer, I saw these on my, and I said, I'll go back and look at those things. I was starting to work on the book at that time. And um, the thing that came through with these kids looking at these letters is how embarrassed they were. And that word was used in virtually every one of the 20 or so letters. They were embarrassed by the letters from 2012 compared to those from 1952. And it was so interesting to read what they were saying. There was something in them that said, you know, we're smart today, and we've got an attitude, and we all look at John Stewart in those days, um, but it just doesn't feel as good as it should. And I was blown away by that. I, th I thought these kids were right on the cusp, and they're smart ass and frisky. Um, and they were embarrassed by their contemporary condition. Uh, and I still think about that. So what's changed over time? Um, to me, the most important thing is these national touchstones have declined. They, people have referenced um, values, uh, traditional values, less and less. They're less philosophical now. Decline in progressive values, decline in traditional values. Some are holding their own constitutional freedoms and religious traditions. Um, and one wonders, and this is not, this is that all values, that these hoary traditional American values are not being referenced in the, in the contemporary letters. They're much more concerned about more empirical things than axiological things. So one wonders if this is evidence of an increasingly splintered, splintered nation or over evidence of growing discomfort with value-based language. That's something to think about. The other thing that <clears throat> was really uh, worrisome was a decline in of what we call oppositional literacy. That that ability uh, or willingness to say, you know, I'm not sure I completely understand it. I don't. I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in a in a rural area. I grew up in the city. And I, I, I know guns are important to you because you know, you're out there and wildlife are there and it's a way of, it's a way of eating, it's a way of maintaining it.
But you know, nevertheless, I think it's a dangerous thing that, that there are no, no controls over you. That, I think, would be a reflective and flattering and, if you will, civic way of responding to another human being. But that quality is so precious. There was uh, a little Obama jump in 2012 on that. Um, but generally speaking, it was a downward trend. Does gender make a difference? And I thought that was going to be a major thing. No difference at all. Women, letter writers, male writers, you couldn't, you couldn't find differences. Um, primaries differ from the general election. Um, yes, people write letters in the, during the primaries. They tended to uh, be more basic. And then uh, during the, um, uh, that's the purpose of the primary. And then during the general election, they tended to feature other things. And I'm not going to go into that now, but it's interesting in the book. Party differences. Um, we did find some differences um, that um, agents of decline or voter perceptions, evidence of disunity. Um, but generally speaking, um, it wasn't whether they were Republican or a Democrat. It's whether or not they were party-based or not party-based people. Does place matter? Um, in one of the things that happened in these letters over time is that some of the cities did really well, Roanoke, Provost, Salinas, and Billings. Some were challenged and some were distressed. And what we found is that the, that the challenged cities tended to have higher levels of civic hope. Uh, I speculate in the book that the robust cities were too busy, everybody's doing too many things to get rich. Uh, distressed cities were much more, much more downbeat. In many ways, I think these people are what Volet might call a melancholic. Um, says, if it can see the kind of beauty in which there is no melancholy, Susan Sontag says, depression is melancholy minus its charms. Talacavino says, melancholy is sadness that has taken on lightness. So I think in some ways these people are melancholics. It doesn't mean they're depressed. It means that they can see the dark side of life, but it's the darkness that makes them go forward. Um, Emily Dickinson has said that hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. I don't know what that means. Um, Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, was really clear. Politics is such a torment that advice. Everyone I love <coughs> not to mix with it. <coughs> so we are, we are in hard times. Uh, people are angry with each other. 2016 certainly proved that. 2018 reproduced it. Um, we're divided as we've never been divided before in the United States. And I think suicide is certainly an interesting possibility. Um, but my argument in this book is that the most important question is not whether or not we're divided. It's whether or not we're still arguing. Whether or not you're willing to argue. Whether you're willing to take on that conversation, maybe not during dinner and Thanksgiving, but after dinner. Um, and have, a, and have a civic and civil discussion. Going forward, we're going to need some kind of conveyance to maintain civic hope. I think it has to be dialogical, continuous, something that's there all the time, something that's pluralistic that everybody can be part of, something that is local and that's future concerned and transparent. 
can we sustain a culture of argument? What conveyances will we have online? One of the things people say, oh, you studied letters together, what an antique thing. I mean, I, you can just go and, um, and look at commentary that goes on endlessly in the Boston Globe and people screaming and shouting at one another. Isn't that a better way to study? And of course, my argument is that you don't know who these people are and they have no sense of place. They could be living in China for all you knew, right again to the Boston Globe. There's something about people of place that makes a difference. We're all going to live somewhere. That, um, despite the miracles of uh, MIT, I think that'll still be true. No matter what the media lab comes up with, someone will always live somewhere. They may be digital and virtual and all that other stuff too, but they will put their rear end on some chair somewhere always forever. And there are political and civic implications of that. So will people participate if we can find the conveyance? Who will these people be? Will civic hope endure? So offer prescriptions to you because you need them, I can tell. Um, we need to listen. We need to listen more carefully. We need to listen more carefully to non-elites. We need to listen more carefully to non-elites under conditions of their choosing. And we listen, need to listen more carefully to non-elites and the conditions of their choosing without using our normal filters, and that's the hard part. And we need to listen to the civic call, and when it rings, we need to answer it. Um, when I began this project in 1992, I started in Fall River. In 1993, started to collect letters, and then those I thought I would go and, oh, how silly I was. I was going to go to the city libraries and I was going to photocopy the letters and then I would come back to the university and I would scan them. Then they'd be digital products and I'd be able to manipulate them. And then I went to the first uh, library in my hometown and went to the copy machine, the photocopy machine, and made a copy of the first letter to the editor. It was virtually unreadable. Uh, because they were old libraries and old copy machines and there was more black than there was white on the page. And so all 10,000 of them had to be you know, digitally re, re, redone. Um, but when I went to Trenton, one of the very first letters I came across was written by a 12-year-old named Irma Decker. Um, and this was 1952 and Dwight Eisenhower was running for president. She wrote a letter saying she was 12 years old. She heard people shouting about having a military man for president. Well, who was the greatest president ever had, she said. Well, George Washington, a great soldier and a great general, went through hardships, battles, and sufferings, but he always came out victorious. General Eisenhower is the greatest soldier and general of our time. I know he follows in the footsteps of the Washington father of our country and will always be victorious. And it never, never left me that this 12-year-old would write a letter to the editor in a city paper. And as I was, uh, I was actually writing this book uh, three years ago when I was at the University of Pennsylvania for a semester. And um, it, I thought, my gosh, you know, this woman who I still, who I, 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 wonder if, um, I wonder if she's still alive. And if I could talk to her and does she have any memory of writing this letter and why did she write it and what did, she, did, it, did it transform her life and did she become civically involved? Did she run for office? Did she, was she the head of this, the school board or the city council? And did this little moment of civic action change her fundamentally 
her destiny? I asked myself these questions. So um, I started trying to find her in Trenton area. Had her name, that's all I had. Kind of an interesting Irma with an E. Um, Decker and you know, and then I, my wife, um, she got kind of intrigued, so she got on her computer and she started searching, uh, trying to get class tech class um, class books from the senior in high school. And then we had two friends, a friend of mine, my college roommate married her college roommate. He went, he was an IBM executive for many years, and she was a history major. So they came up to visit, and they both had laptops. And so we were talking about this. Well, one Sunday afternoon, there were four of us all on separate laptops trying to find Irma Decker. Um, after they left, um, my wife got a lead on something, and she, so she called someone who she thought was from her class. And the woman answered the phone, which is an astonishing thing. And she said, do you know Irma Decker? And she told my husband, I'm writing a book, and blah, blah, blah. Do you know? Oh, well, yes. As a matter of fact, um, I talked to her recently, and she said she didn't graduate in our class, although she should have. She graduated in the class after us, but she doesn't live here anymore. She lives in Florida. And she said, would you by any chance have her? And she said, well, I have her phone number. So um, my wife said, this is great. So give her a call. I said, I don't do cold calls. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? I said, no, I was a dean for 11 years. I have people do that for me. <laughs> um, um, and that's true. Um, uh, and she said, well, I'll call. I said, okay. I said, well, set up a, <laughs> um, set up a, uh, so I, she called her and et cetera. Um, and so I spoke to her and um, um, found her living in Florida. And uh, this is Irma Decker with her grandson. And she, um, I asked her if she, got involved and she said, well, politics, no. She said, I, I watch Fox News. I said, oh. I said, well, uh, involved in the community? Well, I have, I have some three, three or four friends that we have lunch every, kind of once a month or so. I said, ever, no, no, really just sort of a family person. So I had this, oh, this whole story in my head. Um, but I've not forgotten her. And um, five weeks after I, I, um, uh, I got a call from her daughter and said that she died uh, five weeks after I talked to her. So I, I dedicated this talk to her, Irma Decker, and recommend her to you. Thank you. Rob, you're going you're gonna to run your own Q&A, but I, I'm going to intervene and have the first crack. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite rhetorical concepts is Ed Black's concept of the second persona, uh, which is the idea of what a text uh, encourages or invites you to be, whether it be passive, active, angry, sad, whatever it needs to be. It's not a fair question because you didn't necessarily code for that, but I wonder if you have a sense of not just the authors, but who the authors are sort of inviting the readers to be the process of their that's a great that's a great question um, you know I um, I think they're inviting them to be their civic children uh, they they do have a an old fart mentality even the even the young ones 
um, that they, they've thought these things through, and they kind of know what's best, and they've lived in the town for a while, um, and if you would just sit down, young person, and listen to me, regardless of your age, you would be much better uh, equipped to live a life. Now, to me, that's, it, it has that nagging, irritating quality to it oftentimes. And when you talk to the people, um, you can tell that they are kind of nagging, irritating people. Uh, but I've grown to love them greatly. Yes? 250 words a month seems like a, sort of a gate uh, in its own right. Uh, if these people know that they're only going to get a letter that's not much longer than a tweet uh, posted, do they keep writing multiple letters every un month? Un unbelievable. Secondly, I was also going to ask, yes. if you're in Fall River, you can write one letter to the Fall River, you can write another letter to the Providence Journal, another yeah. to the Globe, another yeah. to the New York Times, another USA Today, yeah. so the Financial Times. Yeah. Do they write only to, to local issues on local a, papers, yeah. or do they go regional and national? I wish I, I, I don't have data on that. Yeah, um, it'd be interesting it, to know. It I also wanted it to ask whether the uh, representatives on Darius read the letters in the paper, or do they wait for someone to write the letter directly to them? Are they yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a question that was followed up by a, a faculty member at Indiana University. I'm forgetting his name now, but, but he did um, interview, he did interview with people, they weren't letters to the editor, they were people who wrote to, con to Congress people. Uh, it's, a really nice, it's a really nice book in which he did interviews with both the people who sent correspondence to Congress and the people in Congress who respond. Um, I think you're asking a very, um, a very 2018 question, um, because we can now think we we don't live some we live anywhere we want to live, and so we can do all of that stuff. I think these people, certainly historically, they lived in the town, um, they were people of a place, so I don't think they would think to write to the New Bedford paper, because they lived in Fall River. I think that today that. Is not is a silly concept, but I think generally speaking, these people were people of place, and so place was really important to them. So they write just about local issues. They wouldn't write about uh, foreign affairs. Oh, they write about oh no no no. They write about everything, and and I'd say eighty percent of these letters of the ten thousand letters that we coded were about national and international things. They were not they were not about the getting a leash law in town. There were, there were about 20% were, but 80%, these were all written during uh, presidential elections. So they tended to comment about things that were going on during the campaigns. Yes? Thank you so much. This is just fascinating. And it's really remarkable to have the chance to look at <clears throat> discourse over such a long period of time. Um, one question, and maybe one sort of research possibility coming out of this. I, I'm really struck by your research on efficacy and uh, the finding that the writers of these letters felt both very low internal and external efficacy, that they really felt powerless in some ways, but they still continued to write these letters. One of the real criticisms that comes up about people writing online right now is that this isn't real activism, this is slacktivism. You're doing this because you're not going out instead of doing politics out and then there's other people who argue that, no, this is a new way of doing politics. It's the new way of making change. One argument of this is if you don't feel 
capable of making that change, maybe all that you have left is raising your voice. And so I'm sort of curious whether you see this as sort of voice as a response to this sense of feeling ineffective. Is this sort of all I can do is dissent because I don't have a way of, uh, of, of making change? You know, I don't, I don't think they feel, um, I don't think they feel powerless. I think they feel non-efficacious, mm -hmm. um, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, so they don't, they don't feel that, that, that they're irrelevant. They're not flotsam and jetsam on the waters. Um, they think, they're hopeful. They think it might, if people had any good sense, they'd pay attention to them. Um, but they just are not going to put their eggs in the basket of, yeah, I'm going to get a bill passed tomorrow. Right. So I think it's more of a sense of pragmatic efficacy um, versus in the long run, people will finally hear my voice and listen to, right. to the way I think. So I, I, these, are, these are people can hold their heads up as they walk down the street. Um, but I don't, uh, even if they say, you know, the idiots may not buy it into it. It's, you know, any of us who are teachers, um, and it's an amazing thing that person would be a teacher for life, because every time you walk into the classroom the first day, you say, you know, it's a new set of faces, but they're all idiots. They don't know stuff. What am I doing here? I've done this before, and they're all idiots. Oh, I guess I'll go through with it. And at the end of the semester, they're enlightened young people and you will feel efficacious. But then the next semester you start all over and they're idiots one more time. And you live a life that way because you're always, and I think these people are that sort of thing. Um, well, they don't know what they should know. They're going to need me to straighten them out. So I guess that's my lot in life. And professors can be sour pusses, as many of you know. Um, but, but maybe we can identify with the torment. Um, in terms of sort of a research possibility, one thing that strikes me is that because you have this remarkable collection, you have this possibility of, of doing a way of studying agenda setting that I, I think would be extremely difficult to do in any other way, um, which is to say, you know, following McCombs and Shaw, the general theory that the newspapers don't tell us what to think, but what to think about. Here you have a population which, which is reading the newspapers, clearly is paying attention to it, sees the speeches that are coming out there. One of the questions might be, how do their concerns, their interests, and specifically their language, differ from the text of the papers that they're encountering? Yeah, good. And we are getting to the point where some of these papers, probably not the ones you're discussing here, are archived going back a very long way. You can now get back to about 1880 in the New York Times through automated systems. Even if you were looking at the agendas in some of those elite newspapers and comparing the topics, the language, and so on and so forth to the discourse that's coming out here, it might be kind of fascinating to see. I would be unsurprised to see the discourse of Fox News, for instance, starting to really yeah. come into play in the letters to the editor over the, uh, over right. the last 20 years or so. It, yeah, it might be a, a profitable direction to sort of look that's at. Right. That's, that's, that's cool. Um, I, I've done a lot of work on uh, political voices. So I've written a book called Political Tone um, that um, 
some pieces of which compare the politician's voice to the press's voice to the people's voice, not, um, not ideationally in the uh, agenda setting sense, but more tonally. And, and they, they do have a, a distinctive tone that, that is really quite different from both the way politicians talk and the way the press talks. Uh, one factoid is that politicians are much higher on optimism, linguistic optimism. Um, the press is very low on that quality, and the people are almost exactly in the middle. Uh, and it's a big, it's a big, wise statistical. Uh, there are three clumps along the line on that, uh, which is which is interesting. These people are. They got they've got, a sense of possibility, but they're, not all that. On, and of course, the press is all about oh, the world's falling apart. So. Yes. was kind of my reaction to that it is kind of embarrassing like those letters but you didn't totally uh, or maybe I didn't understand the explanation that you give for why they found that embarrassing so maybe I want to ask you to elaborate a bit more on that is it the, yeah. this know-it-all tone or is it the fact that those people are actually caring to send those letters or what is uh, well I think w w what they're they, I'm sorry maybe it wasn't clear what they were embarrassed by were the, they were embarrassed by the letters sent during 2012 in comparison to the letters written in, two, in 1952. Uh, so you're saying th that they're not as interesting as those? Um, they were not as, you know, these are 20 year olds, right? Um, with an attitude. But they, they thought that the 2012 people were too supercilious, too nasty, too cynical, uh, maybe a little too, too much like them in, in a way. So I think a lot of these letters, the, the papers, as I remember them, were sort of self-critiques. You know, we're such smart asses now. You know, uh, we all want to be John Stewart, but these people back then, they they talked about things that were really important. Um, and what they were picking up in these letters in 2012 probably are what we would now see in 2018 in the anonymous comment sections. Um, Plus a lot of more four-letter words, so I think it, no, I, 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 I didn't make myself clear. That's the distinction. They were embarrassed that they were living among people of this sort, rather than living uh, back when people were took things seriously and had commitments that were deep and abiding, rather than just silly game playing about who's ahead in the polls and whether Hillary, you know, um, had a hiccup or not. Yes? Um, so I have a question about this idea of oppositional literacy. I'm curious how you measured that. Um, particularly for me, it was surprising that oppositional literacy actually declined over time. And I'm wondering if that's more of a perception of oppositional literacy versus actual, like thinking about Yeah, and, and that's a wonderful question, which I can't answer. Uh, but I can tell you that um, that letters written in more contemporary times would say, "Here's what's right, and here's what's right, and here's what's right." And these people, you know, they're they're, they're dumb. They don't know what they're doing. But they're not they're not explaining. They're not saying, "Well, 
you know, I understand, you know, you're an MIT student. I realize that that puts tremendous pressure on you, so it's really nice of you to come to my lecture today. Um, now, I'm intruding in your life. Um, but so that, that's a little of kind of an affront in a way. But it also invites you to say, well, you know, he understands where I'm coming from. And wasn't that nice of him to go f to try to reach into me to understand where I'm coming from? Um, what we found in the way and the book shows how we coded that, um, it's, it's really, not, it wasn't, we didn't have much difficulty at all on any of these things finding reliability because we used so many codes. They were so, they were so minute that it was pretty easy to get. Uh, they were not fancy co uh, kind of coding systems. They were really small micro things. And, and basically said was, you know, were they, were they referencing what other people might have, uh, might have been thinking? Um, and, and you know, do they, when they say I'm, I'm opposed to uh, uh, Donald Trump, do they say, because, you know, last week Trump said that we should do X, Y, and Z, and I think that's crazy because we should do A, B, and C. Well, they, they just run right to A, B. Trump's an idiot, and we ought to do A, B, and C. And so that's what we were finding over time, that that quality has gone down. And frankly, I think you can hear that. Um, is that, that on, one-sided versus two-sided argument? Would that be another way of thinking? Uh, yeah, you could, you could say it that way, but... Uh, um, if you listen to Fox and MSNBC, you know, you know they have the other side there, but it's always three to one, and they always interrupt the one. Um, it seems, I mean, that's, I don't, I can't say that empirically, that it seems to be what they do. It's a setup, so it's not all that respectful, and they talk over one another, and if you and I are talking at the same time, I'm clearly not hearing you, am I? I'm hearing me. So I, I think, I mean, I think communication uh, scholars could set up much better ways of conducting conversations on the public airwaves uh, that, you know, meet the press, for example, would have done that. But cable, cable news is not into that. They're, inter they're interested in the constant struggle. You know, I, um, I can tell you that we, uh, I, part of the, um, it sounds a little simplistic, but if you took, if you, all of these cities have about 100,000 people. If you forced all of them to live in the same city, that city of 1.2 million people, would perfectly represent the demography of the United States. So that was designed in the study. Now the problem is, a lot of the black people live in Trenton. A lot of the Hispanic people live in Salinas. Um, and most people are white that live in, most people in Duluth are white. So it, it, it doesn't work really in a sense. But there is diversity, but one of the things we find is that uh, uh, most, of the, most of these letter writers were, uh, were white. Uh, some, uh, we, were, we were very lucky that we got uh, 
about two-thirds of men and a third of women. We were, we were delighted about that. Of course, if you go back in time, it's more male than it is female, and more women in today's life. And they were more balanced in recent years. So it takes, um, um, Thomas Jefferson said, it takes three generations to make a, to make a citizen. Right? The, the first generation is a farmer, and the second generation is a merchant, and the third generation is a teacher. Um, and, and in a way, it still takes three generations to make a voter. Uh, grandpa comes, doesn't know the language, tries to hold on to a job. The son gets a bit of an education. And in the third generation, they finally vote. And that's what Jefferson this said. This is the first generation of colonial settlers, not a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, and I, I think about that, the three-generation thing, and I can see that in Texas. Uh, I've been there now 40 years, and, um, and you can see I now have Hispanic kids in class that, uh, that are third generation, and they're very different from uh, their parents that I taught in some cases uh, some years ago. Um, and that's why Texas is becoming purple. Uh, it takes three generations to make a citizen. Yes. Um, so just going back to the idea of uh, computational uh, literacy, uh, considering that these seem to be the people who are most passionate about politics, do you have any ideas why do you think that people are most passionate about political discourse becoming less interested in what the opposition uh, maybe uh, uh, to say or amplify? Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation and question. Um, while this worries me a great deal, what I worries me even more are the people who aren't even close to them. I mean, I think these people, if you push them, they probably could do a pretty good job of explaining the other side. They just didn't do it because they were so filled with themselves. You know? But I bet you they could do a better job than the people who live in the neighborhood who couldn't do it at all. Uh, so I, I guess I'm worried about the the, the one hand clapping kind of thing. Um, if if these people are becoming much less oppositionally literate, literate, what about people that are not civically engaged, that are not keeping up with information sources, etc.? And what are they doing? They're just going in and pushing a, the button that someone told them to push, and I worry a great deal about that. Uh, because these people, in some ways, they are, they are kind of role models, right? Because they, they do know a lot about politics, they care a lot about it, they care about their communities, and they're still declining in that quality. So it's a worrisome thing, because if you, because um, I, I think they're, they're uh, better off than the people who live down the street. And the people who live down the street aren't, aren't probably nearly as well. Well, thank you very much, Professor Hart. Welcome. Thank you.